Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Battle of the Bridge. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what has been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there will show some off-pitch activities that caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week we've once again got a full house. That means Lee in the line around the captain's armband is Carl. Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Well, not too bad, Dan, other than on the football front. And obviously, as we know, we mentioned it last week. And I'm sure this week Drew's going to Drew's gonna enjoy this episode quite a bit. So, uh, you know, over to him uh, and congratulations. Well, I think if Drew was busy, he'd somehow cancel all those plans to make sure he's on this show because he's got a little bit of gloating to be doing because Drew obviously comes to us after the back of Chelsea's win over Tottenham. So, Drew, how have you been, mate? I am fantastic. I mean, London is blue every single day anyways, but especially after a Derby win, I couldn't be happier. And and Carl's right. You know what? Since you guys gave me permission, I'm going to go ahead and gloat as much as I can for the next hour. Don't mind my insufferable attitude. I'll do my best to rein it in if needed. Okay, then right. Before you get to that level, let's do the social media bits first so we can be not talking to the abyss. And that means if you want to get in touch with me, you can do on Twitter, at DanTracy1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. If you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like what you hear, leave a review so we can move up the league table. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. As you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. What is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's the company behind the game, Last Man Standing, one which is free to enter, and the prize pool once again stands at £1,000. If this has grabbed your interest, be sure to visit Loserpool.com and create an account. The odds of winning are great, but they're even better if you sign up. 
Right then, it's time to go live. Where should we go first? Let's go to last night's offering as Liverpool took on West Ham. And although Jurgen Klopp's men would eventually come out on top and make it 44 Premier League matches unbeaten, Cole, they certainly didn't have things their own way. Yeah, it probably wasn't as smooth as many predicted, was it, Dan? You know, I think everyone probably went into last night's game thinking about West Ham's form recently and probably predicted a comfortable, possibly three or four nil job. Um, but West Ham, you know, credit to them. They put up a real good fight. And to be honest, for a little while there, I'd imagine, you know, many Liverpool supporters would could have been fearing the worst because, you know, they although they had plenty of the ball, they weren't creating that many clear-cut chances. And when West Ham suddenly nudged themselves in front, I think a few of them might have thought, this is not the sort of game we were expecting the possible undefeated run to come to an end. But, you know, champions being champions and good teams being, you know, and doing what they do, they managed to you know, get, get themselves back in it and then edge out in front. And probably on the overall game and possession of play and, you know, teams attacking and that, they probably deserve just to nick it. But it was a really interesting game last night. Drew, when Gigi Wijnaldum scored early on, I think everyone would have been permitted in thinking, this is going to get ugly. You know, West Ham could be conceding anything, four, fives, you name it. However, three minutes later, they're level. So Diop gets the header, but how much blame would have to go on the shoulders of Alisson? Yeah, you're right. When I saw Wijnaldum score, I thought, all right, here we go. We can just turn the match off. And it's going to be another day in the season of Liverpool. But that it wasn't that. And you're right. Adrian had a miscue on that first goal from Diop. And it was right after that Wijnaldum goal. I think if that goal and that mistake from Allison comes 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, or maybe even in the second half, I don't think it has that much of an impact. But it really took all that sting out of Liverpool's start. And I think that's why West Ham were able to claw back into the game and even take the lead in the second half. So Allison made a big mistake. But as it's been for Liverpool this year, their mistakes haven't really cost them. And their attack, as good as they are, have been able to get them out of danger at times. So I think as a goalkeeper, if you're Allison, that's such a great feeling to have. That, you know what, I made a mistake. The entire world, or well... The entire Liverpool world, because I'm sure no one else outside of Liverpool is watching this boring title race at this point. Um, but to have that notion that, you know what, even with everyone watching, I, if I make a mistake that for most clubs would be costly, he knows that he has enough teammates and enough talent behind him to pick him up and make sure it doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect them and cause them to drop points or even blow any sort of records that they're chasing right now. So Allison does get the blame, but I also think he knows it's just a mistake. It happens. And from here on out, he's going to be fine. And he has the, uh, the talent around him to back him up if needed. And Cole, in the second half, the shock was very much on. And although Fornells didn't really connect with the ball cleanly, it was enough to put West Ham ahead. So on the basis of the way Liverpool played, obviously there was a Jordan Henderson-shaped hole missing. Without him... Can you see him getting punished by slightly oppos better opposition? Oh, I, I, I'm not so sure on that one. You know, I, I just think Liverpool probably had one of them games last night where I don't know whether, you know, when you've got one hand or potentially both hands already on the title, you, you are going to see these odd games where players' minds slip. They're probably not as on it as they as they maybe should be. Um, probably already felt it was a comfortable, you know, game that they should, should just win. Um, so I'm not so sure they'll suffer too much. I think their recent performances will make you kind of feel that, you know, 
are they kind of now getting to a point where there's some tiredness creeping in and, you know, a little bit of fatigue mentally as such, you know, knowing that maybe the job's going to be done. Um, so I don't think, you know, I think Jurgen Klopp's the sort of manager who won't let the kind of, you know, the mentality slip. Henderson's a great captain in terms of, I can imagine he's still in and around the squad, um, you know, making sure no one takes their eye off the ball. I just think they'll probably need to step it up another level um, because, I say, if you do just suddenly go into games thinking you've got them won, then that is where you may get punished. Um, and like as you say, against better sides with better players up top and possibly better midfield, then, you know, you may find yourself two down before you know it and then you are staring down the barrel. So I think it could just be a good wake-up call for Liverpool. And I think they're the sort of side, and, you know, as I say, with Klopp's the sort of manager who won't let them rest on their laurels or, or get too comfortable so I think last night was just one of them difficult games and I think they'll be all right going forward. Drew if we segue across to the Champions League wake up call is quite a good feedback actually because obviously Henderson picked up that injury against Atletico in the first leg and that performance I guess showed that Liverpool human if nothing else but does that defeat also offer something of a wake up call for the second leg? Yeah absolutely I think both matches do this one against West Ham and then the Atletico loss that you alluded to I think both of those because they happened within just a few days of each other, are enough for Jurgen Klopp to say, look, guys, yes, we've been doing well, we've had a great season, but we cannot afford to let this slip. I mean, remember, they still have a chance at the treble, however unlikely that may be, but if they are able to wrap up the title in England by winning Premier League match after Premier League match, then I think they actually do have the ability to focus more on the Champions League and the FA Cup and really go after the trouble. So I think Jurgen Klopp is not taking anything for granted right now. I guarantee you, after the Atletico match, but especially after this West Ham match, he was in the dressing room livid with his players, telling them, guys, this is a second match in a row. We can't do this. We are better than this. Now, that you know, uh, that thirsty feeling for success, that, that relentless attitude of never stopping, might come back to haunt them. It might be bringing about those tired legs already. And so I could see that kind of working against them. But again, the mentality this team has, the way that they are led by Jurgen Klopp, there's no way they're going to let this happen for a third match in a row. And I think this is a wake-up call. And it's probably the wake-up call that causes the big giant beast of Liverpool to get bigger and badder. So I think this actually might work against a lot of teams that are, going to co- that are going to come up against Liverpool in uh, the upcoming weeks. And Cole, last night, if we go back to that, the wake-up call was certainly going behind. That said, they got a huge slice of luck when Fabianski did a howler that made Roberto look good. Now that in itself, that must have changed the momentum of the game because West Ham, they sort of, well, up on their laurels, you know, really sort of going for it and then that would have taken all the steam out of them, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's just a horror show of a mistake for a keeper, isn't it? You know, one of lack of concentration, um, probably thinking what you're going to do when you get the ball in your hands. Um, and next thing you know, it's behind you and it's over the line. And you just felt that the minute that goal went in, you just thought, well, now there's only going to be one winner in this game going forward because the momentum will swing massively. Um, and, and it proved to be the case. There's nothing you can do. You know, West Ham have had some dreadful 
I say I would say dreadful luck because not really funny. Whoever scouted the previous goalkeeper um, needs to be sacked immediately because <laughs> I, say, I could I could pick you probably ten uh, you know ten under ten goalkeepers that would have been better during that period. Uh, but Fabianski's had a decent season for them, so that is just unlucky on his part and one of them that can happen to you as a keeper. And as we all know, as a goalkeeper, when you make mistakes, they often you know they often end up resulting in a goal. Um, but that ultimately cost them the game because at that point Liverpool then suddenly just you know stay, you know they get the momentum going again. West Ham kind of you know you do sort of think we're not for a third time going to suddenly be able to break this team down. Um, although you know they they nearly came close right at the death, but ultimately that they swung the match and kind of just lifted Liverpool and pushed them over the line. True, there was nothing lucky about Liverpool's winner. I think that pressure was building and building, and then finally it was released with Sadio Mane getting the winner. So that means they are now on 18 consecutive Premier League wins, which is incredible. That's a record equaling one. So can you see him breaking that record this weekend, 19, when they go to Watford? Yeah, they absolutely should. I mean, if Liverpool... Look, against West Ham, a team that had lost, I believe it was eight in a row in all competitions, and Liverpool almost bottled it against them... You know, things happen. I I get it. But against Watford, an even worse squad this season, there's no way Liverpool blow this. And again, not off the back of these previous two matches, a close one against West Ham and then a loss in the Champions League to Atletico. There's no way this goes three matches in a row. And I think if you're Watford, you might want to get the white flag ready to throw in the towel already. You know, what are we, four or five days out from the match? Because this, I think, is going to turn into a bloodbath. Those attackers are going to be hungry for Liverpool. And I think defensively, they're going to really be hunting for a clean sheet. Especially Allison, right, who, who we already talked about, had a, a miscue. And then defensively as well, whether that's because Jordan Henderson's been missing and they want to shore that up. Or if Fabinho plays better and is able to uh, play the, the holding role all by himself. I think this is bad news for Watford in all aspects of the match. Carl, if we go back to West Ham now, in their last two matches, they played Man City and Liverpool. And although they've lost both games, they haven't been thrashed. Now, there's been no real demoralising defeat. Although, yes, they would have been hard to take. Is that the only positive that David Moyes can cling on to and try to build on this coming weekend? Well, I think, you know, the performance against Man City, I think, upset quite a lot of their fan base because it was just the negativity they kind of felt behind the whole setup and the selection. I think last night you come away with a little bit more confidence and possibly feeling like, well, actually, you know, if we can put that sort of performance in more regularly, then we should pick up enough points, you know, in our home games and against other teams that are not as strong as a side like Liverpool. Um, so you'd like to think that, yeah, you know, both of those games we probably come away thinking they could be on the end of four fives and it could get really ugly that hasn't been the case so the goal difference hasn't taken a massive pummeling like you'd fear it would so I think last night's performance is the one that gives them a little bit more confidence going forward and they just have to hope that you know those players didn't just raise their game because it's Anfield and Liverpool and that next week they put the same level of performance in. Because if they do, then, you know, you'd like to think they should be okay and get enough points on the ball. But you never know with West Ham. You know, they can put a performance in like that and then they'll go and lose the next game really badly. Um, I I just just still fear for them. I think a majority of their fans that I talk to are really... 
And it's just the club at the moment that just really needs some good news because all round, you know, they've got the march coming next weekend at their home game. Um, and there'll be a lot of protesting about Gold and Sullivan. Um, so so it's, it's not a nice place to be. And you just think relegation would really tip that club over the edge right now. Well, we go to Saturday, Drew. That march, that has the ability to make the atmosphere very toxic. And this is a team that has not won any of their last seven in the league. They've lost four of their last six. If they can see the first goal to Southampton, that could get pretty nasty, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And especially because they're going to be doing this at home. And right, West Ham fans have, for the most part, hated playing in the London Stadium for, what is this now, their third season, I believe, or, or whatever it is. And we've seen the protests in previous years towards the end of the year when they're close to relegation. And already those are coming back now. We're still in February. And if Danny Ings can get an early goal, who's had a great season, and West Ham go down early, this could turn into, you know, Guy Fox night once again. I could see West Ham fans really going in hard on the ownership group. And deservedly so, because I think they've been sold, the, the fans have been sold a bag of goods that has never materialized and probably never really was even in, you know, the blueprints for it. And so I understand their frustration. And so West Ham, after blowing a lead and a huge chance against Liverpool, now at home, if they give up an early goal and lose to Southampton, it's going to get real ugly for them. And the ownership group is going to be under a lot of pressure, as is the, the, the squad and team who is you know taking one more step towards relegation. It, it, it's always hard to say this because you never want to see misery for people. But for what's happening at West Ham now, and over the past couple seasons, relegation almost might be the best thing for them. Clean house, clear out possibly even the owners, and not necessarily start afresh, but definitely start a new project, right? That's always the uh, the buzzword nowadays, is a new project at West Ham. I think that's something that they're going to have to go through. I'll tell you what, if they do get relegated, that stadium's going to become an incredible white elephant, isn't it? 60,000 in the championship, dear oh dear. Anyway, right, let's get to Saturday now. Chelsea versus Tottenham. Drew, I'll stay with you as I want to get your take on the game first. Over to you. Well, I mean, this was probably heaven on earth. I just want to start there. <laughs> it, no, it, it, look, I, <laughs> it was actually a good match. Uh, you know, all, all jokes aside, yes, Tottenham set up very negatively, very Jose Mourinho-esque. But I actually think this was uh, not necessarily an even match, but much closer than... It was at 2-0 for most of the time and then finally ending at 2-1. I thought Chelsea looked great in attack. Lampard pulled, what, three magic rabbits out of his hat. Olivier Giroud scored. Ross Barkley looked lively in attack and rattled the uh, the woodwork. And then using the back three and two wingbacks, I thought worked really, really well, especially the partnership on the right between Aspiliqueta and Reese James, both of whom are natural right backs. And so I think Chelsea got their tactics spot on. I thought Lampard, for a second time in a season, was able to take down his mentor. And as the grasshopper, that's got to be a very rewarding feeling. So I think for Chelsea, very, very positive signs out of this. I think stopping a bit of a skid they were on, getting the attack um, back into gear. And for Lampard, you know, possibly finding a, a more suitable replacement for Tammy Abraham who might be injured still, and who knows how much longer he's going to miss. So for Chelsea, I think very, very positive result. 
Cole, anything to add to that? I guess the point could be that the assistant has once again got the better of the master, that being Lampard, out-tacticking Mourinho. So why does that keep happening? Why do we keep getting out-fought by Frank? Yeah, I, I just think this is part of, you know, we, as you say, we found it at the, you know, the reverse fixture at the new White Hart Lane. You know, Chelsea just kind of knew what knew what was coming, uh, knew what to expect. And unfortunately, you know, every time Tottenham tried to play the sort of football they want to try and play, Chelsea were just reading it, shutting down, you know, the full backs, the wide men, if you like, the wing backs. Um, although, you know, starting a game and expecting, you know, Ben Davies to play a sort of, wing-back role is never going to go down well because he's not sort of guy who's, you know, blessed with pace. You've got Tanganga on the right, um, who's still, you know, finding his feet in the Premier League. And Chelsea just kind of exploited those weaknesses. You know, they, they were more comfortable on the ball. They knew Spurs didn't have a lot of teeth going forward. And on the day, you know, none of Spurs' front men kind of played the way they could do. And, and I think overall it was a comfortable result for, for Chelsea in the end. You know, I think 2-1 was kind of flattering to us in the end because it, it could have been a lot worse and probably should have been. Um, and it, it's just worrying times for Spurs. And, and like as we say, Jose does need to get out of this negative mindset because, it, you know, yes, you know, all this coming out constantly saying, you know, I hope it's July 1st. I just want it to be July 1st. OK, we, we get it and we understand that. But at the same time, there's still games to be won. There's still a season to play and there's still something on the line for it. So I think you've got to try and be more confident. And just because you have a couple of players out doesn't mean you wave the white flag and suddenly give in for the rest of the season. You know, you've just got to try and start finding a way of getting results and performances from these players. And, and you know, the negative attitude isn't going to get the best out of them because it just doesn't set the right tone through the whole club. Um, so I think Jose needs to just try and snap out of it now. You know, we know we've got to give him a summer and a pre-season and then we really judge Jose. So it's not that he gets a free ride to the end of the season. But I think, you know, it would be harsh to kind of start throwing him under the bus massively, you know, the rest of this season. Because he's come into a, a club that's, you know, the squad is in a bit of a mess. It's unbalanced. Um, players that have dropped off a cliff suddenly and young players where we all know young players are inconsistent. So you won't get those regular good performances. And I just, you know, I, I probably don't think Jose felt he was walking into as big a mess as he's actually realised it is now. Um, but yeah, they've got to try and turn it quickly because if they don't, the season could go downhill very quickly. Cole, I'll stay with you because I think it's fair to say the biggest flashpoint was certainly the, the Celso tackle on Azpilicueta. And I believe you've been doing some digging around and I found us a podcast exclusive. So, so it's really interesting, Dan, the process and the way that this works. And, and to be honest, I, I wasn't aware of it. And there's probably quite a few fans who are not aware of how this works. And then you also kind of think that there's a knock-on effect to a game later in the day. So the VAR assistant in the game at Stamford Bridge is the same assistant who then vars the 5.30 kickoff. So oh, really? it's quite interesting the way this works, apparently. So he goes in a booth during the game and he's shut off from all TV and media and everything like that. You've got other officials sitting outside the room reviewing stuff. Um, so the, the way the incident works, apparently, is we have the incident with us also on Aspel Equator. Um, obviously, Mike Oliver, the referee, doesn't give a red card. Now, it might be he hasn't seen it the sort of way that we get to see it on the replays, but he doesn't give a red card. Now, obviously, the official in the booth starts to monitor and look at the replays. He is obviously, in his own mind, and I don't know how, looked at those replays 
And he agrees with Michael Oliver that he doesn't believe this is a red card situation. So he then obviously goes back to Michael Oliver, doesn't ask him to go and look at the screen and say, you might want to look at this. And, you know, I think that's where he should have said, just go and have a look here because it's probably it might be worse than you've actually seen it in real time. So he doesn't ask him to do that. So he says no red card. And obviously, as we know, the Celso stays on. Now, what happens then outside of the booth that he's in and he's not aware of this is going on. The incident's being reviewed by the other officials in, in Stockley Park. They come to the decision that they think it should have been a red card. And obviously, they then let it out to the media outlets because the guy in the booth has no, he can't talk to the media at all and he gets no knowledge of what's being said. Outside the booth, they then come out and admit, we think that's wrong. Um, that should have been a red card. And then obviously that causes uproar with everybody. The game finishes. The guy comes out of the booth and then goes into his post-match review of what's happened. He gets told in his post-match review by his bosses that you got this wrong. And basically, you should have given a red card here um, and almost a smack on the wrist, possibly. Now, what then happens is the, the 12.30 game VAR official then has a few hours break and he always VARs the 5.30 kickoff in the evening. Now, that kind of would worry you slightly, wouldn't it? Because if you've just had a telling off from your bosses and a slap on the wrist, you're more likely then, aren't you, to go into that second game feeling under pressure and maybe thinking, well, any risky incident here, I am giving a red or something because earlier on in the day, I've just been given a major telling off here about something I didn't do. Um, and, and I just question, again, when we're looking at the whole way VAR works, I don't really feel that's an appropriate way for the system to work. Because as we then see, you know, what what does that, you know, how does he then VAR the 5.30 game when an incident comes up? Could another team about to be on the end of a decision that this guy now feels, well, I need to give a red ear because I didn't do that earlier in the day. And look what's happened. Look at the you know reaction from that. Um, so it's, I never knew that was kind of the way it worked and, and what was going on. And I just think, you know, again, it just kind of shows that there's a bit of a farce happening around the way that we're using VAR in this country. Um, and, and for me, it doesn't sit right. You know, you've also then I, I can't understand why they came out and said they made a mistake. I don't see what benefit that's given them by admitting they made a mistake, because that has again just fueled the flames of um, you know, people who are upset with VAR getting even more upset. You then now start having a knock-on effect that other teams in a tight race for the top four and Lo Celso being one of Spurs' best players at the moment, you could have teams rightfully saying, well, that guy should be banned now for three games, but he's not. So Spurs get the luxury of having a player that they probably shouldn't have on the pitch um, and could swing results their way. Um, so I just found it when I when I kind of found that information and, you know, you realise that's what's going on. You just kind of, again, throws a massive cloud over the way things are working this year. And for me, these are incidents that you do just have to say these need looking at massively and changing for next season. Wow, that's a fantastic insight. I didn't know that at all. I thought every VAR game was individually ref by a bloke in a you know, Each game had its own VAR ref. So that's a huge bit of a light being shined there. Drew, anything to add to that a fantastic take from Cole? Yeah, I'm just as shocked as you are about VARs doing multiple matches in a day. Now, obviously, physically, it's, it's not extenuating, right? They, they can do it. 
But I, I completely agree with Carl here in the concern. Um, I think on the day, it might be tough in between the matches to be like, hey, you, you, know, you made a huge egregious mistake in the first one. Now you're off the, uh, the 5.30 kickoff. I think that might be a little bit tough. But because of those issues, I think it's, it's at least worth the Premier League's while to, to look at this and see, you know what? Maybe we should change that because if this is – I mean, VAR has been such a mess this entire year. And then obviously th- this with LaCelso and as Carl talks about how they announced during the match and undermined their own VAR official, which I did not like. As, as an employee, I would hate that to, to see my boss publicly declare that I was wrong while I'm still working. Um, but it's just another example of how terrible VAR has been. And here's the last thing I, I want to say on this, at least for this point, is if these referees continue to get calls wrong, then they need to be reprimanded. Either they need training, they need to go down to lower leagues, or they need to get fired. And the same for Mike Riley, who is uh, the boss of, I believe it's called the, the PGMOL. That's I think right. I got the letter. Yeah, that's, that's it. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's the same right. thing. If he can't make VAR work, if he isn't able to properly train his team of referees, then he also needs to get the sack. And this is just another example. That's an interesting point as well, Drew, because what you find out is that the guys doing the VAR and the guys in the booth are not actually as qualified as the referees on the pitch. So again, you've got a situation of you've got a guy who's less qualified than the actual match official. So is he again inclined to overrule somebody who technically could feel inferior to. Yeah, take Michael Oliver, who's probably the best Premier League referee who was in charge of this match for Chelsea and Spurs. If you're a first-year, second-year, any sort of junior to Michael Oliver, like you said, Carl, I mean, do you really have the stones to step up to him and say, no, you got this wrong? Or take Mike Dean, the infamous Mike Dean. You know, what sort of underqualified or less qualified or inferior referee Wants to stand up to Mike Dean? Probably not. And so I, I think that's a very valid concern, is that if you have referees who are not up to task in the VAR booth, then they shouldn't be there. And clearly they have been, and I think that's why you're seeing so many missed calls this season. Well, that's fundamentally the problem, isn't it? You haven't got enough quality of referees. You shouldn't be having a disparity between the referee on the park and the referee in VAR. They should be at the same level to completely eliminate any of that sort of, like you say, superior doubt of, oh, I'm not sure if I can really put this in your direction. Should you really be making that change? That kind of thing. That can't be right because then you've almost got a two-tier officiating setup, and you just, you well, know, we can see the problems that have been manifesting over not just, you know, this weekend, the whole season. So that's a great insight, Carl. I think we'll sort of run with that. I think there's going to be more and more to come from that. But in terms of the game and the fallout from that, Drew, I'll stay with you. From a Tottenham point of view, the injuries that they've got, from an attacking standpoint, that being Sun and Kane, we've referenced many times. Is this the point now where they limp towards the end of the season? Or when I say limp, are we looking at an eighth place finish, for example? They are going to limp towards the end of the season, that's for sure. You know, personally, I don't buy into those excuses. Yes, Kane is a big miss. Yes, Son is a big miss. I totally get that. Who was the man who in the second half got Tottenham to the Champions League final? Lucas Mora. It's not as if he has, you know, it's not as if he has the coronavirus when it comes to scoring goals. He can do it, you know. And, and so I, I think there is enough attacking talent, 
But I think the problem is going to be something that I saw in this match. Jose Mourinho set up what I thought was a terrible midfield with Winks and Dombele and Lacelso, And they got overrun by two Chelsea midfielders, only Kovacic and Jorginho. And so I think that's another issue that Mourinho has to figure out. I know he doesn't have the big, typical, strong number six that he likes. But you know what? He's got to figure out a way to make it work. And I think, yes, attack is an issue. But you know what? Mourinho has not settled their defense. And he continues to chop and change. As Carl talked about earlier with Tanganga now playing on the right, where most of his time so far with the first team has been on the left. And so I don't think Mourinho's only issues in attack. I think he's causing his own problems with some of his selections and some of his tactics, especially the negative ones. So, yes. Is Tottenham are going to limp the finish line, and if Mourinho continues to put out what I consider are terrible tactics that won't allow them to win, then I could see them falling out of the Europa League places and not having uh, European football next season. Well, Cole, in terms of Chelsea, how much will that win be a shot in the arm for their hopes of securing a Champions League finish? The gap might not be massive, but just getting the better of Tottenham local rivals, that might be the kickstart they need in the race for fourth or fifth. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a boost, isn't it? Because, you know, at that point there, you're thinking, you know, if you lose that game, given there's some patchy form and obviously we, we get close to them and then now uh, you're in a real dogfight, it could just swing momentum the wrong way. But winning, you know, obviously Tammy Abraham's coming back to some fitness. You know, if Giroud's going to get some confidence, um, then it can only be a good thing for Chelsea. Uh, and you, as you say, they've got a little bit of breathing space. They'll feel confident going forward. And it, and it might be the result that kind of, you know, pushes them over the line when the end of the season comes into that top four or top five, possibly. But I do agree with Drew. You know, I do sort of think, you know, if Spurs don't get out of their rut and, and the way things are going, you could even see the season getting worse and even just finishing in the Europa League. Right. That concludes the first half. On the other side of the break, we'll be paying the bills and there's a lot more VAR and football chat to come. So don't go anywhere. Your accumulator letting you down again. You've cashed out early. And you just can't win. Prehistoric football coupons? Nah. Have a think about it. Why not play a new way? At Loserpool. Pick a loser and win a thousand pounds in a last man standing tournament. Be a loser and win. At Loserpool. Enter for free now. Visit loserpool.com. Okay, welcome back. Hope you're still there. It's time to pay the bills. That's right, it's time to play Loserpool. And Drew, you are back in the title hunt with your game in hand. That came good. West Ham lost to Manchester City, and we all came good at the weekend. My West Ham result Monday, very close, but that got me over the line. Drew, you went for Everton. More on that in a bit, but that one also came good. And Cole went for Watford. They didn't really turn up against Manchester United. So the table looks like this. It's Cole on 24, Drew on 22, myself on 14. Drew, you get the first serve this week. Who's going to be your guaranteed loser this weekend? Well, you know what? I have to go with the easy pick. Watford losing at home to Liverpool. There's no way the Hornets pull this off. Watford guaranteed losers this coming weekend. Okay, mate. And Cole, what about yourself? 
Uh, I'm going to go for Bournemouth as my guaranteed losers. They're at home, but they're at home to Chelsea. And I just think that I say that Chelsea result will just lift them again. And this weekend, they'll see Bournemouth off. Good shout. I'm going to go for Norwich to lose at home to Leicester. I think Leicester not been in sparkling form, but Norwich are just so one note that I can't see uh, them getting any joy at Carrow Road. So a quick recap. It's going to be Drew's gone for Watford to lose at home to Liverpool. Carl's gone for Bournemouth to lose at home to Chelsea. And I've gone for Norwich to lose at home to Leicester. And they are our Loserpool picks of the week. Right, there's plenty to get through and not a great deal of time. So let's get cracking. Where should we go next? Let's go to the King Power. And Carl, I'll go back to you. So I think it was a game that really was a tale of two potential penalty decisions. One involving Kevin De Bruyne, one involving Dennis Pratt. The latter was given, but I guess we're all asking ourselves... Where was the consistency in all of this? Uh, and that's the biggest problem this season, isn't it, Dan? You know, I, I think that's the biggest issue that all football fans will have is that there is no consistency. You know, it was deemed that Kevin De Bruyne's hand isn't in an unnatural position. But that has been a penalty for, for a long while now, isn't it? If you're in a wall inside the penalty area, the shot is hit and it hits your hand. We've seen penalties given so many times for that. And I just don't understand how you can kind of give the one at the other end and not give that one. Um, so for me, again, it, it just kind of goes to show the fast that we're seeing and the fact that, you know, one week something's given, the following week it's not given. And quite rightly, Leicester should feel aggrieved because, in my opinion, it should have been a penalty. There's no doubt about it. You know, he, he, I know, he, you know, yes, you could say is it unnatural that, but it hits his hand you know, and, and it's a penalty. Um, and quite rightly, Leicester, I think, you know, feel aggrieved and we all do with VAR because it just adds to the list and list of incidents this season. You'd look at and go, I don't know who's running this and what the decisions they're coming to. Of course, Drew, the latter did see a penalty and it saw Sergio Guerrero step up and try and get the better of Cashbus Michael, something he failed to do. So where's it all gone wrong for City in terms of penalties and how much of a concern will that be to Pep Guardiola? It's a huge concern and I hope. I've never wanted to see anything as much as seeing Ederson in a bright pink keeper's kit miss a penalty and go sprinting back Usain Bolt status to cover his goal and protect against the counterattack. I hope this happens. Manchester City is horrific at penalties. For as good as they are, everywhere else on the pitch, in all aspects of the match, the one thing they struggle at is penalties. And, and I guess every team has their Achilles heel, right? And so for Man City, this has to be the case. But the problem is they're running out of options. Mares has missed penalties. Gabriel Jesus hasn't scored a penalty. Uh, uh, Sergio Aguero missed one as well. And so now I think Pep is really running thin on options because every time they miss, it compounds and compounds. And at this point, it's not a physical ailment of any of the players. It's purely mental at this point. And so I almost think if you're Manchester City and you're taking a penalty, you might want to have a player aim for the woodwork and then try and cash in on a rebound. I mean, honestly, that's their best point or their best chance right now at this point because they cannot hit penalties to save their life. And it doesn't matter which side they're against. I mean, look, when it comes to the Champions League, if I'm Real Madrid or possibly whoever Man City faced later in the competition, I would not be opposed to going to penalties because in that instance, the other squad is going to have a huge advantage over Manchester City. And if they thought penalties were pressurized against 
Casper Schmeichel and Lester when there's nothing on the line other than, I guess, the match and three points? What are they going to do when they're pursuing their ultimate goal of Champions League in the biggest competition in the world with the most eyeballs possible on them? Are they going to crumble or are they going to rise to the occasion? Right now, it looks like they're going to crumble. And so penalties, I think, are a huge Achilles heel for Manchester City right now. And in their pursuit of the ultimate goal, the Champions League, that's going to be something that can definitely hold them back. Well, not just the pursuit of the ultimate goal, but the Carabao Cup on Sunday, if, and that's a big if, if Villa can take them to a draw after 90 minutes and Pepperina's in goal, do you know what? Don't bet against Villa on penalties. That's all I'm saying. Cole, that penalty miss wasn't too important in the grand scheme of things because although Gabriel Jesus finally got the goal, it was Riyad Mahrez who really did the damage. Far too much time and space given against his former teammates to do what he did to allow Jesus to score. Yeah, you, you can't give a player of that quality that much time, can you? And you'd think that, you know, of all teams who would know that, it, it would be Leicester because, you know, most of that squad know what a good player he is. And you should know, listen, if we give this guy that sort of time and space, he'll punish you. And quite rightfully, he did. You know, and, and he did it brilliantly. Um, but as they City get themselves over the line uh, and they move on to next week where, you know, we all sort of feel they'll probably pick up, you know, pick up their first trophy of the season but it could ultimately be the only one they get this year Drew the Jamie Vardy droughts continued to the point where he's no longer the clear owner or the potential owner of the Premier League Golden Boot he hit the post on Saturday but will his barren run be of any concern to Brendan Rodgers how do they get a goal for Vardy yeah I mean they definitely have to be concerned with this I believe it's eight games now in the Premier League that he hasn't scored and you've seen the coinciding dip in form with Leicester overall. I mean, throughout the first half of the season, Jamie Vardy was massively overproducing in terms of, I know you guys hate this, and, and I'm not the biggest fan of it either, expected goals. He was, <laughs> I know you guys don't like that term, but I, I do think over a longer period, you, you can't take some things from it. And Jamie Vardy had way more goals than expected. And I think now you're starting to see that level out. The one reprieve, I think, for Leicester and Brendan Rodgers, who definitely needs Vardy scoring again, is their upcoming fixture list. They have such a favorable set of matches. They have Norwich. They have Aston Villa. They have Watford. They have Brighton. These teams don't like to defend, or at least are not very good at it. And so I think Jamie Vardy now is going to have a chance over the next couple of games, uh, next couple of, uh, games to pick back up form, get a goal or two, and kind of get back on track mentally because it's been a rough ride for him the past couple months or so and it's affected Leicester very negatively and that's why I think their place for the Champions League next season is actually up for grabs right now if Jamie Vardy's able to start scoring goals again then I think Leicester are safe in that Champions League spot if he continues like he is now not scoring and only hitting the woodwork then Leicester and Brendan Rodgers have to be worried because they've had a fantastic beginning of the season. They just now need to fen uh, finish it strong as well. Okay, let's go to our VAR trilogy of video nasties. And I guess we have to discuss not one, but two in the same game. Cole, you can have the first one between Burnley and Bournemouth. It's Philip Billing, and that led to a disallowed goal. So what did you make of that one? Yeah, <laughs> I don't think there's much more we can say. No, not really. You know, you... 
you kind of just get these incidents and you're just sort of sitting there thinking, you know, what is the game coming to if, if these sorts of things are going on? And, and you rightfully feel Bournemouth can feel really aggrieved in that situation. Um, and obviously, when you're a side like Bournemouth, those sort of incidences really can have an impact on you and turn a game. And, you know, you could be starting off really well and then that happens and it just blows you for the whole game. And when you're down there fighting, you just can't get no luck. And it just goes to show again that Bournemouth season this season, they really haven't had the rubber to green when it comes to luck with VAR, um, injuries. Just, just as a club, they've really suffered this year. And, and that is, again, is another one that we add to the list of what is going on here? How is this being implemented? What are we doing? And, you know, ultimately, as we've said all season, Dan, have we? Me and you were for this. But the more as each week goes on and each incident comes up, you're just thinking, chuck it in the bin because it is becoming a bit of a farce. Well, Drew, you know, if that's bad enough for Bournemouth, you get what ultimately was a two-goal swing because... There's an Adam Smith contentious handball. It goes down the other end. Bournemouth think they score a legitimate goal. It then goes back for a penalty, which is then scored. I mean, how harsh was that one? That was so devastating because the goal, it, it wasn't just a goal, right? It, it was uh, a handball at the other end of the pitch in Bournemouth's own box. And they went on the counterattack and scored in you know 10 or 15 seconds, whatever it happened to be right after that. And then to get the dagger of it taken away from uh, VAR. And not only was it taken away, it gives a penalty to Burnley for a handball in the box. This was massive because this was the second goal ruled out. So they already were down a little bit because they could have been in the lead at one point. And then not only did they draw level, but it was taken away and Burnley were able to double their lead. For Bournemouth, this was a massive, massive call in the game that absolutely ruled out pretty much any chance they had. And I think the, the first call, the one that Carl talked about with Billing, was was so close that I almost thought there's no way you can give this. This second one, though, from uh, Adam Smith, I, I think it's a lot clearer. His hand is out. It's clearly against him. Or I'm sorry, it's clearly a, a foul against him or a handball. I think the hardest part, though, to really wrap your head around is the time it took. They let... Bournemouth go all the way down the pitch and score, get on this high, and then they had to bring it back. And so for Bournemouth, absolutely devastating. And it's just another reason that they could go down. And moments like this that impact them so much against a team that they could have beaten, you know, points they could have gotten on the road. I think this was a massive letdown for Bournemouth. I think also another thing you need to take into account is the first decision influences the second. So if that is a goal then they probably get the other goal as well. And then the game is a lot more in their favour. So I think, you know, the referee's made one decision. And if, if he thinks the same kind of positioning is relevant to a handball decision, then it's going to hit you twice. And I think that's really where it fell apart for Bournemouth. And Carl, Burnley continued to make us look silly, as that's now 13 points from the last 15. I guess if you're Sean Dyche, the perfect scenario would be to finish the European places, but somehow turn down your invite to next season's Europa League. Yeah, do you know what, Dan? I think we probably take a lot of credit for this turnaround. Because I reckon Dyke is probably playing our podcast in the pre-match talk and saying, yeah, listen, listen to these three idiots. This is what they think of you. Um, go and prove them wrong. So, you know, we, we, we maybe drew a bit of credit here. Um, 
but yeah, it, what a turnaround. And, you know, they've done a great job, haven't they? They've started putting these results together. And as you say, if, if you look at that fifth place being, if it's up for grabs, if the Man City ban upholds, then you couldn't actually officially rule them out of possibly getting there at the moment, given the points total. So, yeah, great turnaround. You've got to give them lots of credit. But as you said, I think if you spoke to most people at Burnley, they would sit there and say to you that that Europa League campaign really derailed them and took them a long time to recover from that. So quite rightly, if they was to get a Europa League place, they'd probably like to kind of hand it in and just say, listen, we know, thanks very much, but we'll let someone else take a run at this. Um, we'll just focus on next season and possibly, again, another survival in the Premier League because it, it, it throw them off last year and I can't imagine it's something they'd look forward to again. And, Drew, when we talk of survival, how damaging will the nature of that defeat be to Bournemouth? Because when you look at Eddie Howe, someone who usually has quite a bright, friendly demeanour, is starting to slip away at the moment, isn't it? Oh, yeah. They're going down and they're going down quickly at this point. I mean, Bournemouth... They have mixed in a couple wins recently, but overall, it hasn't been looking good for them for, what, about a month or so? And I, I, I here's the thing. If I'm Eddie Howe, I think he has to keep Bournemouth up. Because if they go back down, I think any possible manager offers he would have had from bigger clubs probably get taken away. And so for him, this is also a big moment. I think he's got to motivate the team. Maybe we should start crapping on Bournemouth like we did on Burnley, and maybe we can get sponsorships from both for helping them stay up. I like Carl's idea, and so I think we should go with that. Bournemouth is right now a mess. I I know they've had injuries throughout the year, but right now they've got most of their key players back. They should be playing better, but you're not seeing it out of them right now. And so I think they're in a world of hurt right now. And they're getting sucked into that relegation battle more than they would have liked. Right, we've got about 15 minutes left or so. So let's have a whistle-stop tour around the rest of the games. Sunday, so Arsenal versus Everton. Cole, a very entertaining encounter, it must be said. And I think, unfortunately, from our point of view, dare we say it, they're looking pretty sharp now. And although it's taken Arteta a little bit longer than he wanted, the pieces are starting to click now, aren't they? Yeah, you kind of get the impression that something, as you say, is starting to click. Um, as you say, up front, you know, they've got the players that can cause the damage, aren't they? And normally, I think we would have found a lot of Arsenal teams in the past going behind that early, could have, you know, had the stuffing taken out of them and then not managed to find it within them to go on and, you know, get that game back and win it. Um, So maybe, you know, we are seeing a turnaround here and that Arteta is putting some good work in and, you know, Arsenal could finish strongly. Yeah, I think that's the danger. I mean, with us as a sort of quite a limp outfit at the moment, there's every chance that Arsenal could somehow revitalise their season to the point where they pip Tottenham, which is the one thing we don't want. So if Tottenham have any modicum of success, it's at least try and keep Arsenal at bay. But easier said than done. Drew, as for Everton, they certainly gave Arsenal a scare early on as well, you know, 49 seconds into the game. And although their attacking element looks like it's firing in all cylinders, you'd have to say they were let down by some before some poor defensive structure at the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And don't get me wrong, Obama Yang scoring two goals, you know, as a defense, you can never kind of blame yourselves for that because he's that good. But you know what? Everton have improved marginally under Ancelotti, but definitely not as much as he wanted or has wanted. And you see that coming to fruition against Arsenal, right? As good as a tar- as good as Arsenal's attack has been this season. There's been plenty of times where they have dropped points. You've seen Alexander Lacazette, 
you know, now put to the bench because he hasn't scored enough. Eddie and Ketia, the youngster, has come on and he scored in this match, but can you really rely on him? And so for Everton, I think you got to be a little bit disappointed in your defensive performance. But overall, I, I think it still is the uh, the upward mobile train under Ancelotti. So not a great game for Everton, but I don't think the worst in the world either. Okay, let's go to Old Trafford next. And you'd have to say, Cole, it's been a very good week for Manchester United. Up to fifth now, and the way the cards have been dealt, do you think they can stay there? Or will that question of inconsistency still linger over their heads? I still think there's probably some inconsistency issues that will come back and kind of bite them a little bit. Um, but a great, you know, a great result for them away at, you know, at Chelsea. That probably gave them the real confidence to go into that, that game against Watford. And then obviously, you know, once Deeney gets his goal chalked off, then, you know, you know, United really kind of dominated the game and, and run out deserved winners. Um, so, yeah, a lot of confidence to be taken right now. You know, Bruno, Bruno Fernandes can kind of settle and start having a real impact in games. Then, again, you kind of think, you know, United could finish strongly. But I still think there's a chance that United are one team that, you know, they've won two on the bounce now. I wouldn't be surprised if they go and lose the next two and don't put in the sort of performances you'd expect them to. Yeah, I think that's my fear if I was a United fan. They're just not quite getting a run together. If they can get that, then I think, you know, all roads do look ahead to the Champions League. But you just look at their squad and you think, is it still just lacking something? So I don't think they're anything close yet, but they're still a little bit still to be done. Drew, Watford, a bit of work to be done. They've not won any of their last five. We mentioned they've got uh, Liverpool at the weekend. They're hitting a bad run at just the wrong time of the season. Yeah, you know, Nigel Pearson looked to revive them when he first came in. And it was, it was a great story. And obviously with his history, it, it seemed plausible. But we're starting to see Watford regress back to the mean of where they should be. And, you know, they have their full squad, right? That was the thing at the beginning of the year. They didn't have Troy Deeney. Well, now they do, and they're still toiling in the relegation zone. So it's going to be a long final, uh, what is it, 11 matches for Watford. And it's going to be tough with um, Liverpool, Leicester's still on there, and I think maybe Chelsea or Man City, maybe one or two more uh, bigger clubs. So it's going to be tough for them. They've got to get points when they can against some of the bottom sides because they cannot afford to, to take any more time in getting out of the relegation zone. Carl, let's go to Palace next. A win, which will be incredibly welcome. Their first win in, I think, seven or eight league matches. So one that eases their relegation concerns. At the same time, that defeat arguably highlights Newcastle's issues because they are starting to stumble down the table. And when you look at all their sort of goal-scoring metrics, goals, chances, etc., things are looking a bit bleak now, aren't they? Yeah, I think, again, we strike, don't we, Dan? You know, a week or so ago, we're kind of giving Palace a bit of a nudge. Um, and again, you know, they, they didn't go and get the win. So, you know, maybe this is probably the most listened to podcast amongst Premier League sides, I reckon. I agree. It um, has to be. It has to be, surely. But no, great result for them. You know, they've got to make sure Palace, when they've got their home games, they take full advantage and they get the three points because that will be their ultimate way of survival um, in this league. Again, as you say, Newcastle, a real hit and miss season. You know, they can have some, they can have a little run where you think things are improving. Then they'll have a run again where you go, mm, things not looking so great. I think both sides are teams that suffer just from not really having a prolific goal scorer, don't they? You know, we see Joel Linton for Newcastle, you know, one goal. And again, typically as a Spurs fan, that came against Spurs. So that sells you everything. But, you know, both sides are going to suffer if they can't score goals. But as we said, Palace were used to keeping clean sheets and then looking to nick one. They did that job perfectly. 
Newcastle just need to try and get the momentum going and turn it round because, as we always say, you don't want to start losing and slipping into that bottom zone towards this part of the season because it's hard to get out of. But I think both teams will probably be safe this season. Yeah, I think you're just about right on that front. Drew, Sheffield United were held by Brighton. I think you'd have to say I'll be a better point for the Seagulls considering their patchy away form. Oh, yeah. Away to Sheffield United, who have been fantastic this year, whose defense has been solid. This was a great point for Brighton, especially at a time when they needed it because they haven't been in a great run of form at all. And so for the Seagulls going away from home, like you mentioned, where they haven't been good, especially on that front, huge, huge point for them. Neil Mope scored again. He's having a fantastic season. And the fact that they were able to cancel out Enda Stevens' opening goal for Sheffield United pretty quickly, I think was great for for Brighton. And this is going to go a long way in helping them in their survival battle. Right, last one. Wolves versus Norwich. I'll take this one. Uh, Diego Yotta on a very hot streak, which is not good for Tottenham this Sunday. But, I mean, the goals he scored, not just in uh, the Premier League, but the Europa League also, is just kick-starting Wolves' season. As for Norwich, though, they're as cold as you like. And I think the... The one question that we'll take into next week, we haven't really got time to sort of deep dive into this one, is why has Daniel Farker become so one-note? I think there's not necessarily a, a clamour for him to, to leave, but there's certainly rumblings of discontent because there's no real sort of plan B or no different thinking. I think that sort of stubbornness has created more problems for Norwich than solutions, and I think they are sort of running out of ideas, and I think there's also a sense that they're not really sort of willing to take on new ideas. So I think we'll expand on that next week, saying that they'll probably beat Leicester on Friday. Um, so, if, <laughs> so if you are a struggling Premier League club, please listen to this podcast because we can actually turn things around for you. That's almost a cast iron guarantee. <laughs> right. <laughs> that should be the tagline for the show. Real football, cl- uh, real football cast will turn around your Premier League side. There you go. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> that maybe be... t- maybe clubs could get us into a live version at the ground, Dan. Yeah, that's and then, you know, oh, that that, great. It's kind of like a hoodoo that we'll cure for them. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll come in on the bus and all of the fans will be outside with flares throwing things at us. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. I like that sort of half podcast, half motivational talk. There's, 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 there's definitely legs in this. Right, before the show falls apart in these very last minutes, um, I need to thank my co-host. Absolutely sterling work this week. Thank you ever so much. Drew, pleasure as always. Thank you for having me on again, Dan. I appreciate it. And of course, last thing I just want to say one more time is uh, London is blue. Only team to win the Champions League in London. Chelsea, greatest club in the world. I'll let you have that one, Drew. And Carl, thanks for your time as well, mate. <laughs> pleasure as always. Cheers, Dan. was a pleasure until Drew just kind of chirped in at the end. Now he's <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to bring the party down right at the end. My pleasure. <laughs> Not a problem at all. Right, on that note, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast in association with Loserpool. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChapaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.